This episode of GEMcast is all about COVID-19 and how it affects our elderly patients. Right now, we are in the midst of a COVID pandemic. Different countries are at different positions on the curve of number of individuals infected, as are different states around the country. Meanwhile, we are facing shortages of personal protective equipment such as masks and gowns and face shields for physicians who are on the front lines in the emergency department. There's a lot of uncertainty. One thing we do know is that the mortality of COVID-19 is much higher in older patients. However, there are many younger patients who are getting very sick and are also ending up intubated and in the intensive care unit. This is a text I received from a physician who works in New York City in the emergency department. He said, we are swamped. I tubed 12 patients in the last two days. EDs are overrun, understaffed. We're losing people to quarantine. We are out of vents and now ethics meetings and allotment meetings are trying to figure out which patients should have the vents. We are trying to split vents. Lots of young people are crashing. It's like a movie. In this time of unknowns, we do want to bring what we do know to light and share it with others so that we can hopefully bring out the best in all of us and also protect our most vulnerable populations during this time. These are times of a lot of uncertainty and fear. There are a few different quotes that I've been returning to as I've been feeling nervous about this situation or what it will mean for the economy or what it could mean for my own family members or for myself. One of them is this from Donald Robertson in his book Stoicism and the Art of Happiness. He says, A brave man isn't someone who doesn't experience any trace of fear whatsoever, but someone who acts courageously despite feeling anxiety. Another one that I love is from Marcus Aurelius, of course, one of the original Stoics, who said, Today I escaped anxiety, or no, I discarded it, because it was within me, in my own perceptions, not outside. And as we move through these times of uncertainty, sometimes a little bit of fear or anxiety is a good thing. It makes us be sure that we use our personal protective equipment if we have it. It makes us sure that we wipe down all our surfaces and try to take measures to prevent spreading it to our family. But at a certain point, fear and anxiety can become maladaptive and make it harder to do our job. And that's when I return to that quote. Today, I escaped anxiety or no, I discarded it because it was within me in my own perceptions, not outside. Let's turn to this episode and talk more specifically about COVID-19 in the elderly. Hello, welcome back to GEMcast. My name is Christina Shenby. I'm an emergency physician in North Carolina and fellowship trained in geriatric emergency medicine. Today, I'm joined by a very special guest, Dr. Tess Hogan. She is at the University of Chicago and also an emergency physician and expert in geriatric EM. Tess, welcome. Thank you, Christina. Nice to be here. Right now, we are recording this on March 20th, 2020, and we are in the midst of a coronavirus or COVID-19 pandemic. And if you're listening to this years from now, then this may not seem as big of a deal, but right now, this is everything that is going on. And the reason that it's important for us to talk about it here on GEMcast is that the mortality of COVID-19 is very, very highly focused in the older population. If you look at the mortality curves by age, there is some mortality at the younger age among children or young adults, but that curve just spikes up around age 70, 75, 80. And so really this coronavirus or COVID-19 is truly a geriatric emergency. 
And that's what Dr. Hogan and I are going to talk about today. So first of all, I'm interested in this higher mortality rate in the elderly. Certainly other infectious diseases such as influenza often have higher mortality in this age group just because of comorbidities. But do we know why this is with COVID-19? Are there any specific physiologic factors that are contributing to this higher mortality? So Christina, this seems to be the same process that affects mortality in all illnesses with older adults, especially infectious illnesses. But it seems to be one of de decrease in immune function that uh, some investigators call immune senescence and also the physiologic reserve, cardiovascular and pulmonary reserve, that is lost with every decade as we age. Yes, physiologic reserve is such an important concept to understand. If you can imagine a curve, and I'll put it in the show notes, but when we're younger, we have a little bit less physiologic reserve when you're very, very young as a child or neonate. And then it goes up and peaks around your mid-30s. So if you're listening in your mid-30s, then you are at your peak physiologic function. And then it sort of tends to decline. So a, the same assault on a younger person in their 30s, such as blood loss of a liter or two liters or a pneumonia, that same assault on their physiologic function at age 30 will not tip them above that line of physiologic reserve, whereas in a 70 or 80-year-old, they are not as able to increase their respiratory rate or increase their heart rate in order to compensate, and they may fall off that, that cliff. Aside from the mortality, what challenges may arise in terms of diagnosis in the elderly population? So this also contributes to the mortality but the atypical presentation that older adults have with almost every medical issue, but especially infectious diseases, really confounds the issue. If you present atypically, then it is harder for a physician or any healthcare provider to identify that you have any particular issue. That delay in presentation, evaluation, and diagnosis all of them mean that the disease is at a more advanced stage before it declares itself or before it is found. So you start behind the curve, you start at a position where the person is more ill, and therefore it is harder for them to recover. I know one example is fever. Older adults are less likely to mount a fever, or for example, it may be what we call low grade or 99.8, so it may not meet criteria for fever. Although at this point, at least in my hospital, and things are changing daily, but per our occupational health epidemiologist, he said fever is no longer considered a necessity for testing because up to 40% of patients who test positive don't have a fever. So hopefully as that messaging gets out, then we won't be missing it due to the lack of fever. If you look at our article specifically with regard to fever, there's a lot of documentary evidence to state that a fever of 100 degrees Fahrenheit is sufficient fever in an older adult to be indicative of an infectious process. So that is a very different milestone than we are taught in medicine. And the article that you mentioned was written by 
you along with a group of folks, and I will link to that as well. It is all about COVID-19 in the elderly population. And Tess, one of the things I worry about is infections spreading in nursing homes or assisted living facilities where you have many elderly people living in close quarters, and if they're not able to cook for themselves or take care of themselves, such as in an assisted living facility, they are likely eating together in a dining hall. Do you have any thoughts on what can be done to prevent just wildfire spread in these sorts of spaces? This is a really important topic because there have been at least two nursing homes identified in the United States, one in Washington State and one in Illinois, where COVID-19 just ran rampant in the population, not only in the older adults that are patients there, but also in the staff there. And the mortality was extreme in both those situations. We have examples one week ago and two weeks ago of this exact problem. So the first thing that I want to say is that very simple things can go a long way. The COVID virus is killed by simple soap and water. That includes your hands, but it also includes surfaces. If the nursing home staff can be particularly aware and clean the tabletops, clean the countertops, clean the doorknobs. Anything that is communally touched by people should be cleaned. And the more number of patients and staff, the more frequent those cleanings should be. So that's just a basic hygiene issue that doesn't take a lot of expertise to do. The second thing is, is that nursing homes, all of these are communal living facilities. And most of them do have shared common areas, day rooms, places where people gather to play cards and talk, and certainly places where they gather to eat. They are not made for isolation. Most places do not have private rooms. That's a big factor in the spread of disease. The other issue is that there is not a lot of training in terms of disease prevention and isolation of infectious disease. And there is a lack of personal protective equipment mm -hmm. among yes. staff members. There are many, many issues that are going on here that are not that complicated, but become difficult to address because they require individual training. They require multiple actions on the part of multiple people throughout the day. And they require resources that may not be available. Personal protective equipment is running low in hospitals. So how can we expect it to be available to nursing facilities when we don't have it ourselves? It's a very difficult issue, and it needs to be on the forefront of what people and society are doing to help protect our older adults from infection. What about also minimizing visitors to these locations? Has that been identified as a potential way to prevent spread? So I believe that has been identified, and I have heard many announcements on news programs and public education announcements for that. It is nice to support our older adults. They are lonely. They are isolated. But we need to reach out to them by telephone or by video conference or you know, other methods that don't involve person-to-person -person contact. Many nursing homes have put into effect no visitor standards, and that is very helpful, limiting vendors, limiting just access of the general public 
to these places will help a lot in disease transmission and spread. All of us right now are truly doing our best to stay fully isolated into our family units. But as you said, that's basically impossible in a nursing facility. What other issues may arise as a result of this social distancing or social isolation, particularly among the elderly? So one of the issues is that older adults who require close contact support, so they require assistance and transfer from the bed to the bathroom, those essential functions for them can't be missing. They really do require health provider, caregiver to be in close contact with them. The other thing is where there is more distancing that is allowed, an older adult who is more independent in functioning, but still at a nursing facility, that decrease contact with caregivers means no one is looking at them minute to minute and changes in their functioning will not be picked up. So if you're distancing yourself from these older people to protect them, you don't necessarily see how they are deteriorating. And those issues are very subtle to begin with. So it may be difficult for the caregiver to identify the subtle changes that are so important to pick up because they are our marker that the person is becoming ill. What about patients who have, for example, Alzheimer's dementia? What additional things should we be thinking about or considering for these patients? There are many factors that are important in people with all kinds of cognitive impairments. They may not be able to comprehend what is going on, and changes in their world are very difficult to adjust to. If suddenly all of the people in your life have this yellow mask covering their face and these glasses, it can be very disorienting and very frightening. Some of the suggestions are that providers who are covering their face in any way identify themselves and perhaps at a safe distance allow the individual to see your face so that they can kind of put two and two together and maybe see you putting the mask on so that there is some concept of that you are a friendly person, that you are a known individual. So we need to take great care with those issues that we would take for granted with a person that does not have cognitive issues. We and many others around the country are trying to set up or at least ramp up our telehealth and teletriage capabilities. How do you see this impacting particularly the elderly population? Telehealth is something that has been very well studied and is extremely promising in many areas of medicine. I think very much so in the area of skilled nursing facilities and nursing homes. For example, if I have a LPN and I'm able to talk that individual through what they need to do to do personal protective equipment or how they can assist patients better. Also, the evaluation of patients via telehealth. There's numerous examples where a picture is worth a a thousand words, for example, and an older individual will have a minor injury, little laceration to their forehead, or some swelling to their wrist from a fall. If experienced emergency physician can see that 
via telehealth and make direct communications, it is possible to deliver healthcare totally differently and may avoid many visits to an emergency department where someone can put on a Steri-Strip, for example, or place a splint and an x-ray may not even be required. So telehealth can really help to decrease the number of visits that are made to an emergency department for simple things. And in terms of infection control, not bringing an older individual into an emergency department, into a doctor's waiting room where there's high prevalence of people who are coughing and sneezing, that will go a long way to decreasing spread to these individuals. The other issue that we have been thinking about a lot at our hospital is the standing medical orders and the transfer protocols that exist between nursing facilities, SNFs, and emergency departments. All of those can be reworked in light of this COVID-19 epidemic. I understand it's a very difficult situation. So when someone becomes ill, the facility may want those people to be removed from their facility so that they are not a danger to those within the facility. But the transfer of those people to an emergency department and then not accepting them back is, I think, problematic, hugely socially complicated. But we need to address these issues now before a specific facility has its first case and the situation occurs during one of your shifts. So what can we do? How can we plan ahead? How can EMS providers, nursing home administrators, and emergency physicians work together to address this problem now? I think it would be great, too, if each ER and each hospital system and each nursing facility didn't have to reinvent the wheel and figure this out on their own. But if there were national guidance about here's what to do when one nursing facility individual becomes infected, but they're not seriously ill. They can't just go live at the hospital. There has to be a, a way to perhaps quarantine them in some area in the nursing facility or come up with other ideas. Have, there's a great saying that necessity is the mother of invention. And I have felt like, for example, with telehealth, that was developing and people were getting on board, but all of a sudden this has taken off because there's been immense evolutionary pressure for telehealth to succeed and to become much more mainstream. Are there any other potential ideas or innovations or solutions that you've seen or heard about? You don't want to reinvent the wheel. The first step in all of these things should be what are our national organizations doing and what have they already done? So my suggestion is to first reach out to our national organizations, ASEP and SAM and um, the American Geriatric Society. All of these organizations and many more have already thought of this. There's work that has already been done. There are templates for the transfer of patients from nursing homes to emergency departments. So my first suggestion is all of us should do our homework and become better educated on the specific problems so that we can don't start from square one, but we start from all the good work that has already been done by very well-educated, well-meaning 
people in this space. So that's the first step. And then the second step is that we need to share what we have learned. Things like this podcast and the article are an attempt to do that. There's a lot that has already been done. We need to share with each other and support each other, especially during this critical time. It's almost uncanny because there was an 1820 pandemic, a 1920 pandemic, and then here we are in 2020 with a pandemic. How does this one compare to prior pandemics? Well, the comparison that I will make now is a hopeful one. Our communication in 2020 is almost real time. People can get online and share information with other people as it is happening. That is a double-edged sword because there's also misinformation out there. I have heard many silly things, but one of which being that younger people are immune to this illness and therefore they will not get it and they will not spread it. That's just wrong and those things need to be eliminated. But the communication ability that we have now needs to be used to our best advantage in this 2020 pandemic. The other thing is the response that we are having in the United States looking at other places from around the world and the many wonderful clinicians and people in government that are really trying to help this. What I have heard is this statement about flattening the curve, the infectivity curve, social isolation, social distancing, all of these things that we have already discussed can have a huge impact on the proportion of individuals who are infected and therefore the proportion of individuals who get sick and die as a result of this pandemic. So I am hopeful that anyone listening to this podcast is very aware and has already a step ahead of the game to limit the impact of this terrible pandemic. The other hopeful thing is that it looks like the majority of people who are infected will recover well, that most cases are mild to moderate. And why this is looked at as a geriatric emergency more so is that it is the older adult population who are more likely to have both the severe form of the illness and the complications thereof. So they are the canary in the coal mine. They are the most vulnerable individual. We need to protect them. Well, Tess, thank you so much for sharing your knowledge. And I will put a link to the paper that you and your team wrote in the show notes for more information. And like you said, let's stay hopeful. Hopefully with social distancing measures, we can flatten the curve and limit spread. Hopefully we can develop better supply chain or distribution of existing personal protective equipment or PPE because currently many hospitals are running out. And we will see what the next six, eight, 12 weeks holds for us. But thank you so much for your time and for sharing your wisdom and insight in this pandemic. Thank you, Christina. I want to leave you with one final quote. It is from The Fellowship of the Ring by J.R.R. Tolkien. I wish it need not have happened in my time, said Frodo. So do I, said Gandalf. And so do all who live to see such times. But that is not for them to decide. All we have to decide is what to do with the time that is given us. 
Thank you for listening.